Welcome back to my podcast, Real, Raw, and Flawed, where we take a deep dive into my own personal life and the truth, starting from the very beginning, but also taking a journey through the people that have been involved in my life and special guests along the way. Today, starting off from the very beginning, special guest and my sister, Amber Pinky, is on the phone I'm over from New York. My sister is an educator, author, philosopher, seeker, and a licensed massage therapist, which is, to me, an understatement in all these things of what she actually does. But Amber, say hello to the audience. Well, hello, everyone. There she is. So Amber is in New York, close to where we grew up. Um, She's been back there just a few months since uh, our mom's passing, so she's up there now. And we're, you just moved to the lake again, right? Yep, I'm actually out on Quaker Lake where we spread mom's ashes and uh, just got a little lakefront villa out here. And uh, yeah, I'm actually looking out <laughs> over the lake now and all the houses lit up. It's a beautiful night. Awesome. So just so everybody knows and the audience is, is fully aware, <clears throat> I have not, you and I have not spoke about anything we're about to speak about in this podcast in my 38 years of life. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we, it's funny, we've kind of just dealt with things as they've come or not dealt with them (laughs) as they've come through the years. And um, yeah, this is, this is a new chapter for us. So yeah, this is, and my sister and I have had uh, conversations about this podcast and me starting it and and her coming on and what it would be about and her asking questions of what we should talk about and I've purposely not wanted to have any pre-conversation or insight or or her filming on anything so I will be learning about things right now in this podcast she may be learning things right now in this podcast today so I left off in the last podcast episode talking about the beginning of my childhood, which I don't remember much about, all the way up until, let's call it, Amber, for me, the first things I started remembering was Ely Park, where we moved there. So let's go from the beginning up to that point in this episode. So these are the the first one I know you listened to, but I told the audience that I, I, I don't recall really anything before Ely, which was probably 10 years old, maybe ish. Um, uh, you, let's see. Um, we, we moved to Ethel street in 1985. We probably moved to Ely park in closer to 87, 88. So you yeah, not eight, nine. Years nine? Old. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's about right. It's, I don't really remember much until probably nine, 10. So <laughs> A lot of that timeline, as you listened to, you knew I described a lot of things like what I know about Dad's story about his near death, um, the timeline about um, him leaving, which I thought was in 1981, my birth. Um, and then I don't quite remember when we moved where. So let's just start back to the beginning. Far back as you want to go. Um, Right before I was born. Where were we as a family? Okay. Well, so, you know, in thinking about 
this, um, you know, I've had to kind of think back myself to some of the more pivotal moments. And, you know, as we've discussed many times, um, you know, for myself and, you know, I thought it was an interesting point that you brought up in one of our conversations that, you know, I spent a lot of my life more as an extrovert and you being a little more of an introvert, although I think our core values and and the way that we think and feel have been very, very similar throughout our lives. I kind of wore it all on my sleeve, you know, partly probably being a woman and partly being an empath and, um, you know, partly just being, you know, born in my sign. I, I definitely was telling my story over and over and over again, kind of until I came to my own personal awakening. And I think you were probably internalizing more and or not at all, just living in the moment, you know, throughout your life. So um, it's interesting that now, you know, you're ready to tell your story and I've gone into a more quiet place where I haven't really reflected on the story in a lot of years. So this is this is a really exciting project. I'm really proud of you and really happy for you. And um, I think it's a, a great opportunity for our individual growth and, you know, to model to, you know, others that, you know, no matter what our story, we can choose our path, you know, at some point when, when we decide to. So for me, um, I've been thinking about it and I wanted to share a couple of different things with you. First, I don't know if mom had ever shared with you, you know, I really nailed her to the cross often. And I, I say that because, you know, she was so devout in her faith always. And I was such a, you know, kind of rebel, as far as, you know, I had to question every single thing all the time. And um, so I, I really extracted a lot of information from mom and dad and really anybody I could for a lot of years. And, um, you know, I don't know if you had asked as many questions as I had, but one of the things that she shared with me was that when she met dad when she was 16 years old, him and his buddy R.C., um, we're coming up to the high school where mom was attending and they were probably on motorcycles, you know, and mom was 16 year old girl. She was born of a, uh, Italian Irish Catholic family who was first generation, you know, um, off the boat and their, you know, her parents, parents spoke their native languages from the countries they, you know, immigrated over from. And they, Bent in New York City, moved to upstate New York, the Binghamton area where we're from, and raised their three kids. Mom was the middle daughter, and she was, like her father, a very devout, sweet, naive, loving woman, um, you know, as a, as a very young girl. And when she met dad, you know, he kind of represented something that she really hadn't been exposed to a little bit of rock and roll, a little bit of motorcycle, a little bit of adventure, a little bit of, uh, an escape from, you know, the kind of mom and pop home that she came from. And, um, let's give, let's give the listeners a little context. Dad, essentially was living a bad boy life, um, a little bit of rebellious life um, because of where he kind of came up from. Yeah, he was he was, he was was good in his heart. He had a lot of great friends. He had a lot of, um, you know, people around him and had a really good time. And 
he had a lot of different skill sets, kind of jack of all trades, but he was certainly, uh, you know, breaking the rules and experimenting with drugs and having a, having a good time. You know, right. state lines didn't really affect him. So, yeah, the, the polar opposite of mom. Right. But so she had shared with me that when she was 16, when she met him, from the time that she was 16 until she was 21, when they had me in 1975, she wrote love letters to him and wrote letters to his mother, Evelyn, his, uh, his mom, um, grandma pinky, um, for years, these beautifully. And if you, I don't know if you remember mom's handwriting, but it was so beautiful. So anyway, she wrote letters. I mean, she just fell in love. She saw, and what's interesting is I think this will come full circle as we talk through these episodes that, you know, we, we have identified in ourselves this, um, propensity towards wanting to fix and help and solve and 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 part of that was in was in mom it was in dad too and his fix it all in his like the technical nature but in mom it was she really truly believed that love and her faith in god could move mountains i mean she believed it with everything in her almost probably to the point of naivety and and no offense to her because she was such a beautiful untouchable spirit in that way that no one could even hold the flame to her um but so okay those years 16 to 21 she just fell head over heels and decided this was the project this was the love of her life she was going to save this boy and fix them and fix um you know him and show him that love was going to be the way and they were going to have a beautiful life together so they had me um in 1975 and they didn't get married until i don't even know i can't even remember if i was two or four uh, again like you it was like from the pictures you know that i was told um but she was only with him and so i spent the first five years of my life just as an only child and dad was mom and dad were together and but dad was still you know young and he was doing carpentry and and working but he was also you know driving to ohio to get pounds of marijuana on french fry oil on an engine that he converted to diesel you know <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. There, there, was, there was a lot happening the so-called um, failed inventor status of his brain <laughs> right so mom just you know doing doing her thing you know she just started she was in nursing school when she was pregnant with me she used to actually um, take when in those days when you had a baby you could take somebody to you could take your baby to school with you at Broome Community College and she was about 22 credits short of getting her nursing degree and I think that dad was just kind of coming around less and less and getting a little bit more involved in the party scene and whatever he was doing. I mean, the, the truth is, is I don't think anybody knew what he was doing. So do you remember, he, do you remember when you were that age? Do you remember him not being around or being around or, or, or do you remember any of that time? Um, the only memories I, the, the, the biggest memories I have are, Mom and her family, Grandma and Grandpa Midwinter, Louise, Uncle George, um, we spent every single Sunday there. We I, we lived um, very, very close to Grandma and Grandpa always during those years. So we spent a lot of time with her family. Um, I do remember 
dad be his presence like not specific memories but because we would see um his great grandparents my great grandparents which were her his grandparents um the babukas um on a fairly regular basis and we saw his father on a fairly regular basis um and when i say fairly regular for him i mean you know a couple maybe once or twice a month um in those days and so I'm five years old, and it's so that must be it's 1980, right? And um, he hadn't been around for a while, and we were living on Willow Street in Johnson City, me and mom, and you know, supposedly dad. I was at Blessed Sacrament, um, probably in you know, kindergarten or first grade. And I just remember having the more of the feeling of I was completely devastatingly I mean the thing that mom passed on to me was love I I was completely and totally in love with mom and dad at that point I still didn't see any wrong in the world you know um but I I as I you know looked back and grown through the years and things I remember waiting for him a lot and looking out the window a lot and spending a lot of time in windows and doorways I think waiting for him and um, not knowing how little he probably actually was there um, and conversations I've had through the years with some of mom and dad's friends and things who were around Dennis George and some of the other mutual friends um, that they grew up with who were spending time with mom to support her, Diane and Mike, Sakala, different people, um, I think could probably attest to. She was probably alone more often than I even remember. So... Um, in 19, probably the end of 1979 or 1980, before you were born, um, I actually answered the door at Willow Street and dad hadn't been at home for a couple of months and mom, I, you know, to back up, she had left nursing school and started working full time at Wilson Hospital to pay the bills um, because dad's, you know, presence was so intermittent and she actually started as a cashier in the cafeteria at Wilson Hospital. That's how she ended up there 37 years later as the executive accounts coordinator for UHS hospitals. Yeah, I do know that um, story. Just, just one day at a time. Yep. So, I he hadn't been around in a while, apparently, and I opened the door, and I'm like five years old. And to be perfectly honest, Mike, for about 30 years of my life, I thought I was like eight years old. And it, it, it took me a while to actually get this timeline straight in my own head. So when you, when I heard you tell the story in the first podcast last week, I thought, gosh, you know, we, a lot of the facts we all know about ourselves are just that something somebody told us. We don't even, you know, how can we really know when we're that young? So I'm five years old and, uh, dad, somebody knocked at the door and I answered it and dad was standing there and he collapsed in the doorway. And all I know is that a helicopter came to get him literally landed in the Hancock parking lot where, I mean now that we're like adults and you realize how small that parking lot is imagine a helicopter landing there airlift helicopter yeah. and took him to Robert Packard hospital he had overdosed on heroin and speed and um, they were experimenting with it at the time it was like whatever at the time so it's so funny because I think they really made that small um, like, oh, it's just what they were experimenting with. Like, who's that? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like that's so they, normal. They they get a really bad rap in life, don't they? 
it's, it's weird because the these they people are really bad people and so he he had overdosed like you you told the story that he um, you know he had blood poisoning they had to take a piece of his heart out do you, um, do you remember do you remember this clearly is this an image you remember him at the doorway this, collapsing Oh yeah, this is my this is my actual recollection. This part is not something that someone told me. This is so I've, ne- I've never heard this before. I've never heard this part. I didn't know. Well, I didn't know that you witnessed that. I didn't know that you were around to see. Oh yeah. You know, as far as I knew, he was at a party and and no. got rushed to the hospital. I had no idea that. I have no idea where he was or how he made it home. All I know was that in the depth of his heart, he knew that mom would be the only one that could save his life in that moment. And I don't know if he was actually coming to say goodbye or to be saved. You know what I mean? Because he knew he was in trouble. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I answered the door. I stood, I sat in the window of the um, second floor of the Hancock uh, Furniture Store building where we lived, apartment two, and um, I watched them take him away in a helicopter. And so, and like I said, this is the weird part. For most of my life, I thought I was like eight years old and not five because it blows my mind that a five-year-old actually has these clear memories of this time. So, So fast forward... Everything then became a blur because now everybody's got a rush into mode. So this is mom, this is 1980, before mom was even pregnant with me. Yes. See, this is because, where this is where the story got blurred to me. Yes. And switched into, I thought I was always told that the year I was born, dad almost died of a open heart surgery from overdose. No, so I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward and then I'll go back, but you were conceived because, at fast forward, after he was rushed to the hospital, he went to, he had the open heart surgery, they cut him from neck to belly button, they had to pry him open, they couldn't use narcotics because it was an overdose and he couldn't have any drugs, um, he had to do self hypnosis and like all this alternative stuff, <clears throat> which is interesting because it did lead to some of the stuff that I'm into now. But we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, and so, so if that so, so if dad, because he he got sober. They told him that if he ever did drugs or alcohol ever again, he died. would die. Yeah, and so mom took him back six months later and nursed him back to health, and he swore off drugs and alcohol. And they said, we're going to do this now. Uh, you know, he can't, he can't party anymore, so might as well, right? And um, so they decided to have you, and they, he went back to work after he recovered, and they got the house. So dad dies, I'm not born. Exactly. If See, he had that, overdosed. That, that part I did not know. I thought that mom was already pregnant with me when he overdosed. Nope. So wow, that's a that's a first. That's kind of a, yeah. a mind blowing piece of information because I I didn't know that. I thought the frame was a little bit different. So, dad doesn't come home. Dad dies. I'm never born. Exactly. So mom's love is the reason that we're both here. Of course. <laughs> Essentially. Of course. 
All right, even, so we're in, even, so we're in 19... Even Dad's belief in mom's love. Dad didn't even believe enough in him, his own life or his own worth. All right, so we're... In mom's okay. And we're in... So they decide to have me, and they move to Ethel Street, which... Okay, so wait. So wait. So they... So he... So all that goes on. He goes in. He has open-heart surgery. She brings him home to recover. During his recovery, I'm five and a half years old, you know, and I'm in outside his bedroom, like, playing with my dolls, like, hearing him go through heroin withdrawal <clears throat> and thinking that, like, bugs are all over him and this, that, and the other. Mom's, like, working full-time, taking care of me, making sure I'm going to school, doing everything she can, <coughs> excuse me, to take care of Dad and get him to the recovery. So, yes, yeah, so then he, he makes it out. He starts doing carpentry work for, I think, the McMahons or whatnot, and they have you. You were born in 1981. Now I'm six and a half years old because we're six and a half years apart. Right. Okay, so still I'm the, now six. Still in the apartment six, at this point? Yeah, we're still at Willow Street, and I, what's ironic, again, and I'm writing, I've been writing a lot um, this story, and... So now, ironically, I'm in that same second floor window where I saw him airlifted away, and it's February 23rd, 1981, and I'm waiting for them to bring you home, and I'm six and a half years old. I'm in first grade. Hmm. And they bring you home, and they, like, Is this crazy that the, that the only memory, I'm fast-forwarding a touch here, but the only clear memory I have, which I don't even have their memory of me being there, but I've been shown it so many times, and now I'm I'm starting to think that maybe there's a the first connection is the picture of me sitting in the window at Ethel looking out. You know the picture I'm talking about? Yeah, and you're four years old that picture because we didn't move to Ethel Street until right. 1985. Right, so I'm four years old, but I remember looking that over and over over years because it was always brought up. My mom showed it to me, you showed it to me. It was always like, oh, look how cute he was. He was fat when he was young. <laughs> but, but when I when I look at that picture, I don't even know the person in it. And when I when I look well, at that picture, babies. I look at I I know, but I look at that picture and I look at the face on that person in it, and it doesn't seem like a like I'm in the windowsill in a great place. It seems like I'm a worried child. That's what I always perceive that picture as for thirty years plus years. So anyway, go on, go on, because I keep hearing the you in the window story, and I'm just trying to. Yeah, well, there was a lot of windows. Um, for I think probably, I mean, this is interesting because you know, again, you and I have never had this conversation, but um, people in relationships in my adult life, I've actually had people tell me that I'm always looking out the window or I'm always looking out the door, and I and I feel like that was because I was kind of always waiting for dad to come home. Um, interesting. And kind of just waiting for him. So I don't know if you had that same experience. And, you know, later on in life, you know, which we'll get to, um, he probably did. So. So we're in. I'm born. I'm born. Okay. So. Okay. So you're born in 1981. Now we're apparently we're in Ethel Street. Or I mean, I'm sorry. We're still in the Willow Street apartment. By the way, let's just. Down. By the way, let's just have a, a moment of silence for me being born. Like, thank God. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go on. Thank God me because they handed me like a living doll i like fed you and 
swaddled you and read to you. I like, I love to read at that time. Like, oh my God, I was like alone all those years with just adults and all mom and dad's hippie friends and like camping trips. What was that doubt later on in life? The, the something in me, my buddy and me, I was like the real life, my buddy back then too. I loved that. We couldn't, we couldn't afford toys. So I was the the (laughs) real life toy. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was like, uh, add, just add Michael, Insta family. And to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot of, during those years either. And I'll have to ask, we should ask Aunt Louise what year she got married. Because um, I can't remember if you were, you must have been, because I was probably seven or eight. You were probably little. Maybe you weren't at the wedding, but you were here on earth. <laughs> But, so, just add Michael, Insta family, right? So, it's 1981. From 1981 to 1984, we're on Willow Street, and apparently, you know, Grandma and Grandpa live one block over on Broad. Um, Aunt Louise and Uncle Earl are young. They don't have kids. They're, like, like the dream aunt and uncle. Like, they do everything for us. Like, give us M&Ms and Coca-Cola and, like, Stover's lasagna and things. Like, we were pretty much living on... Um, you know, starches, white starch, like whatever, (laughs) uh, white bread and pasta and you know, whatever. So I don't really remember a lot about those years other than it seemed a little bit picture perfect as far as what I guess it could be for us. You know, there was Christmases and Halloween. Um, there's a lot of pictures from those years at Willow street of us in like different Halloween costumes each year and things. And, Mom was thriving at the hospital. Dad was doing carpentry. I don't remember so that for you, so, so for you, it got, it essentially got a lot better because you saw a lot worse. Uh, well, I only saw worse for those that year before you were born. Other than that, I was just no, but I mean, your dad, on mom's love. I didn't really know what was going on. I know, but your dad almost died at your footsteps. You heard him go through terrible withdrawals. You must have thought he was sick at, at some level in your brain. And then oh, it just yeah. it became better right i mean it became okay all that's behind us and over yep the next the next four or five years became really kind of good and what you thought family was supposed to be there was a lot of did grandma and and probably and probably all the family members were a little bit you know the aftershock like okay life is short right let me ask you about um before we move forward yeah how did how did everybody else react to uh dad almost dying as far as Grandma Midwinter and Tom and our grandpa, like, were people pissed off? Were they, did they like that? Uh, well, Grandma Midwinter, from day one, she was actually, my my dad either broke his leg or couldn't be at my birth. And my and Grandma Midwinter was the one that was there when I was born. Um, by, the way, so Grandma, by the way, Grandma Midwinter is my mother's mother, for hey, reference Rick, to the crowd. Who was amazing, who never drove a day of her life, smoked Parliament cigarettes, ran every club in town, was the leader of everything, a philanthropist, amazing, worked hard, you know, ran numbers for the mob, big mouth, amazing. So she saw through dad immediately. She never liked dad. She never wanted a part of him. But grandma, you know, she, she knew humor and dad could get to her with humor. So that happens. Both his family and mom's family rally. All of a sudden, everybody's around all the time. Everybody's taking shifts. For the first time in my life, I'm going and I'm being babysat at Grandma or um, Dad's dad's house. Grandpa Pinky and Pat and Yvonne and Mickey. Um, 
our, our babysitting because Grandpa Pinky steps in always trying to make up for, you know, something and took mom to work every single day during the time that dad was recovering. So actually everybody, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what was going on in adult conversations or if people were, you know, what they were saying and whispering behind closed doors. But to me, everybody was rallying and coming together and being super supportive and doing everything they could. So I want to give you a... I'm going to give a short context to the listeners, just a very short, because you and I will, on another episode, go a little deeper into this, um, uh-huh. into our family members, but we'll keep it on us now. But um, just to give a context to the, the listeners, <clears throat> the midwinter side of the family is my mother's side of the family. So when we speak of grandma and grandpa midwinter, that's my mother's parents, Aunt Louise and Uncle George, her siblings. My father's side was uh, Michael Pinky, where I got my name. Um in a short, just a clip into it so you understand my dad more, his parents were not around when he was young. And our grandfather, his dad, spent a lot of time later, much later in his life, trying to make that up. So when Amber speaks of, you know, trying to be there to make up for what he wasn't, he wasn't around. Our father spent a lot of time with his grandparents growing up um, and had a lot of resentment there. So that's a little snap right there. We'll get into a deeper a podcast about that uh, moving forward but so continue we're we're five years everybody rallies it seems like a good family it's moving into 1984 85 right right and that's that as far as everybody's concerned including myself dad's sober okay he hasn't had a, he hasn't been going to the bars he hasn't been drinking he hasn't been smoking he hasn't been doing drugs so because he will die that's the main reason um tell me I, real I, quick sorry Tell me real quick about the, the hospital experience because I, t- I said in my podcast, the story I heard was when he went in for open heart surgery, yes, they did tell him he could die. But the story I heard was they, to save him, they tried some not so sh- for sure stint or tube or valve they put in and he was supposed to be going back to the hospital and never did. Is that true? Yes. All, all that is true. And... The added thing was that he had um, a bad reaction to one of the drugs or the antibiotics that they gave him because I don't know if it was sepsis or the blood poisoning, but the reaction caused him to lose the hearing in his right ear gotcha. completely. Okay. And remember him being deaf in his right ear his whole life. He had Which always turned to the left. I didn't know that either. So just FYI. Yeah, okay. Little, little, All right. <laughs> There. So my, um, my timeline was just very off, which was actually a big okay. part of it, which is a big part of it. <laughs> well, right. You were told a story that you thought was relevant to your life, and it was, but it was more the reason that your life exists in, in some yeah. manner, you know? So, okay. okay, so all those years go by, everybody rallies. Um, he's sober as far as we know. Now they're going to they're gonna build the dream. Okay, so he talks, you know, dad had amazing survival skills. It's so interesting because even though he did everything, you know, we have to, I guess, develop his character in these podcasts so that people can start to understand who he actually was because he was as awesome as he was terrible. Um, And that probably says it all. But um, he talked his boss at the time into working off a $17,000 house that was actually a really 
big, beautiful house in Johnson City. At the time, it was it was a massive house on a double lot. Um, yeah, no neighbor, you know, double lot. Yeah, three stories, lot, no neighbor, garage. Yep, beautiful neighborhood, lots of kids, very safe. You know, it was our first home as a family. And so he talked his, uh, his, his boss into, like, basically trading him, bartering for this house, which, you know, as we'll get to know, Dad is very typical of yeah. <laughs> who he is. So we, we get Ethel Street, and we all move in, and um, it, it becomes, you know, one of the best times of our life for a million reasons. Um, so you were four, or let's see. Let's see. So 1985. So yeah, you were four, and I was ten okay. years old. And you, it was yeah, first so, time you met. So I definitely, I, I do have um, a lot of recollection of Ethel Street years, but not until four years in or so that we've been living there. Four or five years in, meaning I would be like eight or nine, probably nine. Um, yeah, but at that time we didn't live there. That's what's interesting. Right, so that's what I'm saying. Why, I think my memory started at Ethel after we weren't actually living there and we were living with mom just visiting there. Yes. So so give context, we, mom and dad, or dad hustles the house. We all move in as a family. But yes. I don't remember any of those years as a family living there. Tell you the truth, I don't remember mom ever living at Ethel. Um, yeah. Which is crazy. But I do remember Ethel for a lot of fond memories, but it was when we already had moved to Ely with mom and I was getting dropped off there. I think that when we get talking, you will actually remember the first year because it's the year that you met your best friend, Marco. <laughs> you know what's you know going to sound crazy? You were both four years old. You know what's going to really sound crazy? I don't, uh, I don't ever remember meeting Marco. That's not even, it's not even, I don't know. Like I always told a story in my head for so many years that the only reason I even knew Marco's just because our sisters were best friends growing up and, and actually Marco told the same story. So when everybody was like, Oh, well, how are you guys best friends? Like, Oh, our sisters were best friends. So it just, it kind of has to be, but we never ever told a story about. I think I actually legitimately saw witnessed you and Marco meet for the very first time on the corner of Ethel and what was it what's the dead end there Lacey yeah Lacey uh-huh and literally you were both as cute as could be you were like four years old and they just lived three houses down and yeah um, zero those were the days yeah zero Oh, that's so interesting. You were probably on big wheels, you know? Dad, so, dad so, would literally drive up and down the street with, like, babies on the... Um, I do remember... Okay, here's a good one. take of his motorcycle. Here's a good one. So, I do remember, like you, like you said, you thought you were eight during that one time. Yeah. I do remember the big wheels kind of era there, like, we're riding around in front, but I felt yeah. like I was ten. No. I know this, I know this, but now it's connecting like... (laughs) And wait, let me jog your memory further. The reason I know that you also have some recollection is um, 
Danielle, when mom and dad were together, when we moved into that house, and we were, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoiler alert and tell you how long we were there yet, because I want it to kind of unfold as we continue talking, um, but I want you to remember Danielle, Danielle, enter Danielle Hughes, the babysitter. Right. <laughs> okay. So she lives kitty corner across um, on Haynes Avenue from us, right? So right. I could see her bedroom from our bedroom, and I could, like, flash the lights in my bedroom, and she would flash the lights in her bedroom, okay? Right. And the first time she came over and introduced herself, we had just moved in, and a different family that had, like, nine kids, the Van Curens, had just moved out, and she used to be their babysitter. So she came over promptly and introduced herself to mom and dad. Now, mom still had straight long amazing hair down to her butt and dad was like totally in his prime he looked like tom Selleck meets like cat stevens and they were like super cute they went out together they played pool together they were working they were taking care of the house dad brought home a microwave that year no one had ever seen a microwave before it was just invented and he had us all sit down at the table and he microwaved an egg in front of us, and we were like, holy crap. <laughs> That's the most amazing thing we've ever seen. Um, these were just these little tiny moments I, think, I remember. I but, think he had that same microwave until he died, by the way. Um, <laughs> the first one, <laughs> the last one. <laughs> that microwave was older than everybody in this world combined. <laughs> oh, God. How about radiation poisoning? that. <laughs> Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, don't worry. When we get into the 90s, we talk about how many times they nuke the same cup of coffee. That's not even talking yeah. about it. So, um, so, but you don't remember, like, Danielle babysitting? I mean, MTV's. No. Okay, so 1985. Let me just bring you back to try to jog your memory a little bit. Okay, so the McKeeties, 1985. Um, Livio's always, like, kicking a soccer ball on the dead end street. Um. Danielle Hughes starts to babysit us, like, I don't know, once a week or something. Mom and Dad started going out, like, once a week. And she would let us stay up and watch, like, poltergeist or, like, things that we should not have been watching at that time. And she'd let us stay up right until they pulled in the driveway. And then she'd make us run up the stairs and get in bed with our hearts pounding. And then she'd go down and answer the door, like, oh, they've been sleeping for hours. Everything was great. You don't remember Danielle babysitting at all? Not, not even a little bit. So I, I don't remember. I don't remember Danielle and Joe till they. I, I was old enough that they weren't babysitting us, but they. She had told me she used to. She always be like, "Oh, I was your babysitter." I don't remember them babysitting. You don't babysitter. actually remember no. them there, though. No, nope. so weird. Um. So yeah, when well. when did it when did it go from like th- they're great when you started to realize there was. Or did you ever realize there was issues between mom and dad before she moved out? Before she moved out did you, of Ethel Street? Yeah, did you see it coming, or were you shocked when it happened, well, or they started fighting, or? Well, you're skipping way ahead. I mean, first, I want to keep jogging your memory. You don't remember dad, no helmets, and babies sitting on, like, gas tanks, riding the motorcycle up and down the street, like. Totally. I, I remember the Yamaha 80. Here's right. a, here's okay. a, here's that's, what I can tell you. That's... Here's what I can tell you. You piece it together. Here's what I remember, and I don't. Why I say I don't remember anything because I don't remember the ages these were. So I remember the Yamaha eighty bike. I do remember riding it with Dad. 
Like me being in the front, holding the handlebars, going through the cow pasture. Don't know how old I was. I remember uh, Dad's A-team van. That was the coolest thing on the planet Earth, I thought. He had like a, like the A-team had that Chevy panel van. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was years later. No, yeah, exactly. So I remember that. Yeah. Um, Do you remember the green couch that was held together by a metal frame and like if you caught the metal you like cut your leg open but we would all pretend the floor was lava and like jump was around it, on the couches was it like suede feeling yeah yeah i don't remember the metal part but i remember the <laughs> yuckiness of the suede it felt gross i don't even know if it was suede it but was you know suede. what i mean it, it had like this felty felty yeah, yeah. suede pleathery yeah it was weird it was furry it was definitely okay. furry Okay, yeah, I, yeah. Rem- I remember that. I remember um, cutting my hair and blaming it on you. <laughs> um, yeah, e- eating caviar in the – you stole caviar out of the refrigerator yep. and ate it in the backyard. Yep, Which, again, this is that's, – that's reference to the audience. Um, we were not – we had – by the way, we never had money. My dad, <laughs> like we said – Throughout their entire cash. life, always hustled in angle. He always had cash. He always hustled an angle. We had cool things like the first microwave, which we shouldn't have had, but somehow he got it. Like somehow, yeah, he hustled a job or he'd do a job and be like, "Hey, don't pay me. Give me that. Give me that new microwave nobody has." Okay. Or, you know, the other thing I remember was. Um, Again, I don't know my I don't know the ages is why I'm so spotty because I don't remember if I was 10, 12 or four or five. Um, yeah. During these things. That's why that era was so dodgy for me because I remember I remember a moment and I don't know anything around it. I don't know where to tag it or where it is. I remember a moment where Ethel Street was had light to it. For me, like I had light. Had what? Like light. If I'm looking yes. back to it, there was light and it was it was a good space. Like it was yes. hard to explain. It was light right. in my memory. But yes. then, you know, knowing it for so many years, I can see it very dark as well. And well, yeah, I don't know when that changed <laughs> for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we'll get there. Yeah. Let's stay in the bright zone for a minute, you know. That's the the bright zone. Probably that was the best year of my entire life. I mean, not only was um, porn on scrambled um, television, like you could. Oh yeah, see it. I remember. You could, yeah, I remember <laughs> you the black boxes Dad had and the yep, illegal. Yep, Dad always was stealing. He always had some kind of weird illegal cable box. Yeah. Um, also, what you said, I have to say this just because it's funny and it speaks to who dad is again. This was one of the reasons, I mean, mom, this is one of the many, many reasons that just ground mom down. But she would never, ever, ever buy anything new. Like if a TV broke, you just put another TV on top of that one. Um, he had a, we didn't have a washer and dryer for the longest time. And then when we finally got one, he was like so excited to bring her home a washer and dryer. Do you know that he brought home coin-operated ones that you had to keep 
four yes. quarters in it all times. I don't and remember. Like, I don't remember him bringing it home, but he had it for so long. I remember it being down there and thought, <laughs> "Holy effing!" That's when I kind of was like, "Holy effing shit!" Our dad is some kind of savant or a con artist. <laughs> And I didn't know which one because he was brilliant. He was a very smart individual. Absolutely. And I, and I couldn't, couldn't do or answer, but yeah, and I couldn't like, I couldn't understand if my father was just as <laughs> a, a head of the time brilliant man that was a savant <laughs> and he had his hands on the pulse of the world and we got the first freaking divvy to it. Or he was just <laughs> a hustling con artist who was also smart. <laughs> I, I, I think I really do believe both. Like I said, he was the most amazing person and the most terrible person all in one, like somehow. Yes. Um, yeah, so we yeah, have coin-operated coin washing and dryers in our house. We have caviar in the fridge for some reason with a do not touch <laughs> sign on it. We have, we have motorcycles outside. All the things we had, we shouldn't – we had a house which we were bringing – you know, hustled and, and paying over a thirty-year mortgage for seventeen grand. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it, it was a bit mind-blowing. Mom never missed a day of work for thirty-seven years. I mean, she really—you yeah. know—he—he—he he, he was like a lottery winner in life. He—he he won lump sums every three to six months. And he could always get his hands on it, you know. And don't let's not forget that whether he was drinking or sober, he was in the bar Olympics. There wasn't a bar sport that he wouldn't excel at and win money from. Whether that was, and he would go there just to hustle other people. He really legitimately thought that the rest of the world was stupid and there for the take, you know. Um, <laughs> so no, I did. Kind of funny. Um, okay, so yeah, so 1985 was a good year. MTV um, was brand new; no one had ever seen or heard of anything like it. And um, I would, you know, sing around the house, living in a material world. My Madonna and Mom, the devout Catholic, would be like, "You are not a material girl." <laughs> oh. So Lord. where are you I going? To, are you going to school at this point? I had the best time of my life. I'm at Johnson City. Where am I? Um, Lincoln? I begged begged them to leave Catholic school because a lot of the girls that I grew up with, the Andrews, and um, a lot of the girls that were in Catholic school with me were uh, converting to public school. And I really wanted to wear blue jeans. And I'm sure for them it was more like, absolutely, because we don't have to pay for public school. (laughs) Um... But, yeah, so now I'm at Lincoln. So if I'm 10 years old, I'm in fifth grade, and I'm at Lincoln. Yep, and I'm walking to school. Stinking Lincoln. (laughs) And it's through the cow pasture, through the park, and uh, there you are. No, I remember, I I remember, I I guess I remember a lot of things, you know, like the cow pasture, the place. I just don't, my timeline was warped by my own brain i think by just closing out the areas and keeping the spots i know and then i don't i don't actually have recollection like i don't have i can't recall the moments happening if that makes sense so sure well you were you were young i mean uh, you know unless there's very traumatic or very exciting you know, things, I don't think a one-year-old to, you know, seven or eight, I don't think they are all that 
memorable necessarily for anyone, no matter how they grew up. But one point I did want to remember to mention during this chapter is that um, I don't know if you remember or if you know people told you this, mom or dad or Danielle or just different people um, in our life or family, but you had um, several ear infections growing up. You had when you were when you were a baby, and you had to get tubes in your ears on a couple of different occasions. There was one point I think before tubes were a thing. They, I remember Dad being more worried about it actually than Mom. Ironically, you would think that she would be more the worrier, but he was really, really concerned. Maybe it was because he had lost his hearing, but he was really concerned that you couldn't hear for a really long time as a young, like as a baby, like from, you know, I don't know, 10 months to four years old, in and out, different things. And so when you tell me things like you don't know if you remember things or you don't have a, a true connect, I wonder if you actually were having hearing issues and that would make more sense because if you're a semi-deaf child in the world, you're gonna you're gonna black out a lot more. Yeah. Than I mean, most could be. People. I remember having the two. I remember when the tubes came out finally, which yep. is later because I had it. I had it for and a long time. And then you never had a problem again. But. Yeah. I actually have phenomenal hearing. Yeah. Um, but. No, I could have. That could have very well been part of it. Like I just didn't actually witness it with one of my senses. A right. lot of things. You're not hearing something. You're not hearing anybody fighting. You're not hearing any trauma. You're not. I mean, you know, and you're a baby. Like right. you're missing a lot. So that would make a lot of sense. All right. Um, but on the other hand, you were brilliant <laughs> as a child. And Danielle and I. It's so funny because you know she was only a couple years older than me as our babysitter, and she became a lifelong friend. But we still will laugh to this day because we would, you were the cutest baby in the whole world and we would take you all over the neighborhood and we would con the other kids and we'd be like, my little brother is the smartest kid in the neighborhood because we had trained you to repeat the last thing we said. So no matter what we said, as long as we said it last, you would repeat it. So we would ask you, like, brilliant math questions or who was the president, whatever it was, right? And we would lead you. We would say the wrong answer first, and then we would say the right answer second. And you would always answer the last thing we said, which was always the correct answer. And people would be like, oh, my God, he's awesome. That's funny. Uh, something we still laugh about, you know, 30, 40 years later. I think that's hilarious. That's funny. So, anyway... So, 1985. Okay, so, let's, let, let's, whatever you want to continue to share up until the point of, um, just share up to the point where it started to turn the other way, and then we'll, we're going to stop there for the next session. I mean, we'll get into the other way. So, we'll keep this in the light. We'll keep this in where, you know, as far as I know or don't know, but you were a witness to, we're living like a normal family. For the most Ish. part. Middle For the class most. America. Yeah, middle, middle yes. class to low class, yeah, like mid, that, normal family. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of those things, <clears throat> we're talking about 85 now, 86. How long were we, were we there? Give me the time frame of how long we were there before things went bad or they decided to move out or mom decided. I don't even know what happened, so. 
Yeah, well, the saddest news in the entire world and, you know, the beginning of probably both of our um, individual paths to, towards survival, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, I believe, and it's so sad we can't ask mom or dad um, this question, but to my recollection, we only all lived in that house together with mom for one year. 85-86 I believe so because by the time I was 13 years old we had already lived on Mozart Street and Ely Park and we'll get to all this in the future and mom was diagnosed with cancer for the first time I was 13 wait Mozart Mozart Street was after we had lived at Ethel for the first time Mozart Street was the first apartment we lived in after we left Ethel Street me, okay. You and mom. Okay. Okay. So here, yep. that's crazy because again, it's just so skippy. Like I don't, I don't, I know of Mozart because of what you told me. I remember you telling me, uh, you, you taking don't care of me. The wars? Looking, no, I don't remember shit from Mozart. I remember you, you telling me. You don't remember me, those? You don't remember the chestnut trees with those no. spikes on them, and we would throw them across the street to the other kids, and you'd have like one. And Sasha and Laura that lived next door. No. And we I had don't. we had Coco there. Coco kept getting sprayed by the skunk over and over and over again. And Mom played volleyball with Dave Kresge and Cameron and Sharon and all these people from UHS. I, we go to I, volleyball games. Yeah. A little bit. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I that, that sounds familiar, but I can't I can't make sense of it in my brain if. You're just telling me the story again, or if I actually want to. I was it. such an adult. You, I you, was just. I wanted to be a part of it all. And I, I know, but you I told me so him. many stories about Mozart more than anything else. That's why we skipped ahead. We've never talked about from from this point on the past of it. We've never till today. So the no. audience knows we've never been. ever talked about this. The only thing we've we actually didn't talk about Mozart. It's just my first memories of you sharing with me. Our life is we were young. That's when you started telling me about. I used to take care of you and watch you, babysit you. You talked to me about Mozart, but I didn't know it was right after Ethel. I didn't know we lived at Ethel yeah. yet. Yeah, we actually were staying between Aunt Louise and um, Grandma's house for a little bit, and then she got the place on Mozart. We moved in, but we'll we'll get to all that because we skipped how it all kind of came to an end, and one of the reasons why you probably. Um, don't remember a lot of the things for those years after because it, it was a lot. We were we were ripped out of a home we loved. Uh, there was a lot of tumultuous things happening. So Dad tell me, started, tell me, eighty six, um, end of eighty. We're there for a year, as far as you know. For, as far as I know, for sure, we're there for a year. Okay. We had a good solid Let, year. Let's of call it amazing. the the eleventh hour or the eleventh month. What what right. did you start seeing or witnessing that? leads us to our next podcast like what did you what was the well, sign or what did you know or hear or think well, or so? well because i'm mom's best friend in life at 10 years old or 11 or whatever i am now driving around johnson city trying to find catch dad's car at potentially karen weidman's house um because he has entered back into the scene. It, the the family nuance has worn off, and he, something has caught his eye. 
and uh, mom starts to go a little bit, you know, crazy on it as far as like, you know, are you kidding? She's crying and she's upset a lot and she's looking for him. And I didn't fully understand to me to give me now, you know, when I say this out loud, you're thinking, well, yeah, of course that's who you are because this is who people perceive me as like, Oh, give me a, give me a reason to be empowered and I'm going to stand up and shine, you know, but I didn't, I didn't really need that responsibility at 10 years old to go knock on my dad's girlfriend's door looking for my father, for my mom who's in the car. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, that and I, knew, was I knew about, I was, a, I was a crusader at 10 years old. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I knew, I knew that Karen, you know, I knew Karen stepped in the picture. I didn't know that. I didn't know how it, Happen or if mom knew at the time or when it happened. So that kind of spawned it. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. And, uh, I mean, do you want to, um, you know, discuss the 11th hour in this episode or do you want to wait no, until the I, next or do you want to no. just finish up that year here? Or where do you- <laughs> no, I think, I think that's, yeah, I want to split it up into two. I mean, to give the audience context and, and me to reflect on some of the things you know, timeline-wise, I think we kind of, we stop at the, the coming into the 11th hour. Like, what kind of spawned it? So that, what kind of triggered this next phase, this next episode we'll talk about, is Dad got bored of that life again and, and, and kind of had a relapse, if you will, of yeah. I need to get back to the party life or whatever it is that took him out, right? So that's... Whatever it is. We can at some point discuss, you know, the deeper part of why Dad did anything he did because I don't, I don't truly believe that he was a bad person. And every single terrible thing I know about him, which most people would probably never speak to this man again, um, I think that I've done enough self-actualizing and personal development to know that it's okay to know. He actually wasn't a bad man. No. Um, he Look, was deeply, I, deeply wounded, and he never, he he was a dry um, addict, and he, he never had the coping skills. Um, yeah, to, I, I can relate to Dad. Uh, well, I, well, I can already tell you, moving into the next section of this, what's about to come out and unfold, and as we go on through the journey of our life, I can tell you exactly what I'm very sure of as a man of, in this family, uh-huh. where I relate and connect to dad on multiple levels uh-huh. and respect what he went through because throughout witnessing a lot of it, when I was very clear, I still went right to fuck through it. Right. On purpose almost. And not as deep maybe, but felt a lot of the same things of inadequacy and, and finally feeling like I got somewhere. And like wowed myself and then try to blow it up because I don't feel like I'm self-worth. My self-worth wasn't there and I didn't feel like I deserved it. Um, Oh yeah. Big time self-sabotagers. I mean, you know, we're all, the the fact that we somehow innately knew how powerful we actually were and yet how deeply wounded 
we were at the same time and not even having the understanding and also the context and the language. I mean, I wasn't, I was 30 years old before I even had language to identify what I actually was or who I am or what I'm capable of, you know? So, you know, you know what I, you know what I, I heard the other day and it's, it's, I told you I watched this episode on Netflix and one of the things I grabbed from it right away was, a woman explained such a horrible, horrible situation. You would never even fathom in your mind that it was possible. I couldn't even believe it when I heard it. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And uh, she was saying, I blame this and I blame him and I blame her and I blame for all my pain. And, my... and the one thing that really caught me and was like, if you're going to blame somebody for who, for all the bad things that are happening to you, you better be willing to blame them for all the good things and who you are. So blame them right. for being who he was at the time so you're the strong person you are today. Blame him for not showing you the right way and showing you the wrong way so you became the man you are today, the woman you are today. So it, it was interesting to hear that. Like If you're going to blame, blame both sides for the good and the bad. Yeah, and, that's a really good point. I and, mean, and I see that a lot in Dad and me. I felt, I felt a little torn in our young age because I knew that you'd went through a different life than me with Dad, and we're going to get into this. But I felt torn because I had such a different relationship with Dad later in years, and because I didn't remember a lot early, I didn't, I didn't understand why you had a different one. So. I was in the between, like, is this guy... He was my first heartbreak. No, I I know that. I don't mean it like that. I just Mm. meant, like, I didn't understand why we had different relationships for a long time. It just didn't... It makes sense. I mean, we had two sets... We had parents who, they raised me when they were 21 years old, and then they raised you when they were closer to 30. I mean, they were different people. Think about how much you changed between 20 and 28, or, you know what I mean? So... I also we thought had, mom and dad divorced in 1981, by the way. Uh, that's, that's cute. No, they actually got together and got a house and tried to play house. And, and then didn't actually divorce for like another 12 years after she left Ethel. So that'll be a whole other interesting. But is that, is that amazing? Like, how do you, yeah. it's, I want to, what I want, and we're going to kind of wrap this up on that point. So what I want the listeners to understand and, and know is, that we are today, we are the people, we are a product of the stories we tell ourselves. So part of my journey down this path of doing this podcast was that uh, through some current episodes this past year in 2018, I had gone through so much um, that it, it came to me that I was telling myself essentially lies. I was telling myself versions of stories that I did know and I didn't even know so that I could live a certain way. Um, and, and this is why I'm, <laughs> I'm literally at this point and, and trying to really open up the floodgates and not be nervous to hear something or be scared or not want to talk to you about it prior to this podcast because I want to be as real as it possibly could be for you and I. Um, uh-huh. The listeners don't know this because I haven't shared yet, but, you know, Dad died in a motorcycle accident in, what, 2009? 
2007. I mean, 2007, excuse me. Yep. 2007. And then we just lost mom this past year in January. So the and only one we lost in a split second, and the other we watched die for two years. So right. And two different, very, very different situations. <laughs> and <laughs> we had very different relationships with them in that, yeah. to your point about blame and or um, responsibility, you know, me personally, I, I, oh my God, I mean, all I did was blame all of my adolescence. I was raging against the machine. Like, uh, the things that I would say to mom and the things that I would ask her about, like, why would you choose dad or why would you? And I couldn't even hear until literally probably the last five to ten years. I could not even connect with or hear you would not be here if I had not chosen him. No, it's not. Like, that my life was complete. Like, I didn't even care about it. Like, I, 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 I felt in all of my heart that they were so to blame and so irresponsible for having children or, you know, whatever their whole life unfolded as that I would have not, I would have sacrificed being born. And the whole point is I needed to be here to share the story to, to do exactly what we're doing right now. No, a thousand percent. I mean, mom. But it took I, me my I, whole life. I would trade everything in the world to see mom and dad one more day of my life in, in the flesh. Everything that I ever done, everything that I ever think was important to see them one more day. But I am so grateful today sitting here and thankful that they are both not with us because it's allowed me to do what we're doing this moment that I was never, that I wanted to do. I've had it in my mind. I've thought about it. I've thought about what if, what if I just was 100% real, raw and flawed out and open and never, never fibbed about any of my stories to make it look and sound better than it really was. What if I was just that person? And you know what I, I thought, and I told you this the other day, it was I didn't want to hurt mom. Because she was still here. I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Because I was so protective over mom for so many years. I felt like I was supposed to be like her protector. And I don't, you know, it just came to me. And her passing was like this, like, lift out of my shoulders. Like, I don't have this right shoulder problem anymore since since mom has passed. And it sounds, you know, it doesn't, it sounds weird, but it's a blessing. It's a fucking blessing. That's completely normal because what we, nobody tells us in our, you know, all these stages of our life too, and that we've only come to in our own discovery and our own seeking and our own knowledge as a student and a reader and someone looking for better answers than the answers we've been given as far as how it all evolves. Emotional holding and trauma is rooted in the beginning of pain. All disease, all pain, you know, all the things that I do now in my career and in my life, and even in a lot of what you do, you know, we we can understand that, you know, it's not just how you swing the golf club, it's not just how you stand while you're, you know, mowing your lawn or at work. It's it's literally how you have buried emotion inside of your body that results in how we feel and how we act every single day of our lives. And until we actually get to the root of that, yeah. we, can, we never really get anywhere. Yeah, I agree. So, look, this is going to be an unbelievable experience, I know, for myself and for you. It gives us a chance to continue our relationship and 
being open and honest with each other and sharing things that we've kept from each other over probably protection more than anything else. Um, but look, I, I had this, I got to send you this when we off this podcast, but I had somebody send me a voice message on Messenger two days ago after I had posted that post when I was in Ponte Vedra of me sitting on the stoop. Yeah, and I wrote that and then I had the podcast before and she had sent me a voice message one of my friend's sisters who went to school with saying I felt compelled I saw your post and I listened to the podcast. I felt compelled to send you this voice message um, because you just move me with your with your openness and honesty and, and you're, you're not scared to share with the world your fears and Man, when I listened to it, I like exploded with emotion, and I think that's I think that's the big part of me why we do this is because I want that. I want I want to touch one other person, inspire one other person to not be scared to tell their own truth. And you and I always talk about helping our clients and our people to be their own truth. And this is going to allow you and I to be way more of that teacher version of ourselves to help so many more people, including ourselves. So I'm, I'm super pumped about doing it. Um, it's making me emotional talking about it. So, uh, Well, and I want to say to you, too, that, you know, in, uh, for whatever reason, in the last couple of years in reconciling with mom's passing from this life to her next and our propensity to try to save her life and the survival mode that we went into and how we realized that we had reached the same place by taking two completely different roads in life and you know you have continued you're gonna make me emotional you've continued to inspire me because you always say to me all the time and I you know people I think a lot of people that have you know, been exposed to me in life and, you know, good or bad, I think would think that I'm fearless and because they see, you know, that I've traveled or I've, you know, made all these decisions that are maybe alternative to the way that a lot of people my age live or whatever it is. But yet there's, you have identified in me that there's still this underlying deep-seated fear where, you know, it's so juxtaposed because I can stand in a classroom and I can talk for five hours and feel amazing about what I'm sharing and imparting with people that have such limited experiences and things. And yet, when it comes to my own personal confidence levels there's there's still been this fear here that you know I'm not enough somehow or if I said it out loud and so I just wanted to say to you that you have really helped me to understand by saying to me over and over again so I mean so what you say to me you say what it's the truth I mean what what is that going to change I mean just who cares you can can say it and it doesn't have to change anything but it can it can help somebody else to realize that you can go through all kinds of things and still become you know beneficial and amazing and a part of a change that is I think what our true intention in our heart is is to serve and, and to help humanity to evolve and grow and people to just get through their journey and realize that they have a choice 
I think the most misunderstood thing about you and I and in what you just said, when people think about looking at what we do and traveling a lot and going here and by the cuff and just I'll just jump on a plane and go here and all the things I've done and what I think nobody understands, which they'll start to understand me and you through this journey and is I don't I don't do all these things because I'm fearless. I do them because I was afraid of not. I do them because yes. I'm afraid of what it means if I don't move. Yes. And and in that well, fear, that- in that fear, I'm scared shitless. I look right. fearless, but it's not fearless. It's it's being scared of not knowing, or or not, or, or thinking that if I don't, you know, if I don't. Right. And sometimes we nature. sacrifice taking care of our own personal. And I think that's where me and you share um, of that quality. So I think we're getting over it, though. I think we're getting through it. We're getting better every day. We, so We absolutely are. This is the proof of it because we're willing to completely really relinquish everything that is perceived. Um, and, yeah, just tell our story and, and continue to, yeah, serve. Well, look. I wanna I wanna wrap it up here. This is our our, our our third technically podcast of real, raw, and flawed. You can find it on iTunes. Um, it's gonna be on SoundCloud. It is. Excuse me. It's on iTunes, SoundCloud. It will be on Spotify eventually. Look for some YouTube stuff coming up in the future. We'll film some things. This will not be the uh, the only podcast with my sister. She'll be on several times through this whole journey because she's. The only person that I have in my life that's been there from, like she said, waiting in the window for me, and she'll be there until the day I die. So she's going to be along this journey with me multiple times on this his podcast, sharing sharing the journey. So I look forward to more things. And, and like I said before, the things that I list about my sister are a complete understatement of who she is as a person and what she's capable of doing. So look look forward to seeing what she's doing next. she's She has put together some amazing stuff that immediately she has not put out yet, and I've, I've been on her case for many years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to read uh, the journey of her life and the things that she has in her head because every time we talk, I learn something. So I can't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, sister, and as a person. So I'm looking forward to doing this again with you, and I appreciate you. You spend the time with me and being open. Same, kiddo. I'm honored and um, I'm super proud of you and I love you. And uh, I'm looking forward to every single day. All right, gang. We appreciate you, all you listeners. Go subscribe to the podcast. Follow us along the journey. Uh, we love to hear your comments. I- I'd love to hear you chime in. And it doesn't have to be about us. This is not about us. It's about the reflection of us. We all are mirrors. We all see each other and each other. We're all going this, through this together. So chime in, share your story, talk to us, leave comments, uh, positive or, or, or negative. We, I'm, 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 I'm over the, uh, the judgment. So, Yeah, I tell people all the time, you know, when I even, I, you know, I love social media because, you know, a lot of people, you know, bitch about it. It's so funny. Everybody's on social media. 
and yet everybody acts like, you know, it's the worst thing on earth. I love it because I can use it as a platform, and I think you do too. And oftentimes, you know, I'll just kind of see something, or I'm in all kinds of different groups and, and different people, and sometimes I'm in groups with, you know, thousands of people I've never met before that could be all over the world, and somebody will just put something out there that they're really struggling today, or they're really hurting, or what's the meaning of life, whatever it is, and I'll just kind of put whatever comes up in me, and I'll leave it there, and I'll never think about it again, move on with my day, my life, my year, and somebody will come back and, and inbox me or something and say, God, that was so thoughtful. Thank you for taking the time just to just to hear me. I just felt heard, and that was important. I simply write back, you know, I truly believe we're all just alone in a room, and whenever somebody says something to us, whether it's positive or negative, that is the part of us that wants to either grow or die. And that's it. So like yeah. you said, it's it's just a reflection, and we're all going through it, and none of us are alone. Um, you know, yeah. it's the collective consciousness, so. I agree. You gotta keep it growing. All right, we love you all. Thank you for the support. Until next time, see ya. Love and light.